bad actors are actually using social media more efficiently than those trying to protect and promote freedom of religion or belief. Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Today, we're going to talk about the impact of the content moderation processes of social media companies on freedom of religion or belief and related human rights. During the past two decades, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and other social media platforms have emerged as invaluable tools for connecting people around the world. However, social media sites can easily be used to amplify hate speech and disinformation about religious communities and mobilize real-world violence, discrimination, and hatred. Governments and social media companies' insufficient responses to online hate can result in grave human rights violation, as illustrated by Facebook's failure to address incitement against Rohingya Muslims in Burma in recent years. To combat these abuses, social media companies regulate speech on their platforms. These companies often have rules that ban certain types of speech, including hate speech, directed at religious communities, which are enforced through a combination of artificial intelligence and human content moderation to filter, review, flag, and remove or downgrade potentially problematic posts. Some social media companies, including Facebook and Twitter, have made commitments to incorporate international human rights standards to address the harms that may occur on their platforms. As explored in USERF's recent uh, December 2021 fact sheet on protecting religious freedom online, the excess removal of speech can also impact the right to religious freedom and religious expression of users. Today, we're fortunate to have with us Luanne Sabatier, principal at Sabatier Consulting, uh, who will further discuss content moderation and its impact on freedom of religion or belief and religious communities. Uh, Luanne and her team have recently conducted research into this topic and will share some of their invaluable uh, and key findings. Thanks for being here today with us, Luanne. Thank you, Dwight. Glad to, to be here. Great. To start with, uh, could you share with our audience more background on content moderation and explain what are the policies and practices of major social media companies in regulating harmful speech on their platforms? Sure. Uh, Content moderation is the practice of monitoring and applying, as you said, a predetermined set of rules and guidelines to the user-generated submissions. And they do this to determine best if the communication, such as a post, is permissible or not, which is algorithms in a human approach. And the key, Dwight, is striking the right balance between the two. You know, as you said, from the beginning, tech platforms have been gatekeepers, deciding what content stays and what doesn't belong. And they have legal departments that are meticulously crafting guidelines and refining terms and conditions. 
and implementing enforcement measures. And why do they do that when it comes to human rights? They're trying to keep bad actors and bad behavior at bay. But the current social media climate has brought up many questions about content moderation, such as how do we define the scope? Who should really be in charge of deciding what is or is not appropriate content? And then how do you balance the, their moderation policies with freedom of expression? Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. And, and I, I, it begs the question, you know, what types of speech uh, related to religious expression and protection of religious communities are prohibited on these platforms? And, and how is this speech identified and addressed? You talked about the algorithms, but are there other ways in which they can weed the, the worst of the worst language out? Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to explain this, but let me share something that came up in, in one of our conversations, one of our first interviews of our research, is that you may not be aware, but due to the volume, the billions of posts globally, daily, that they are screening out about 99.9% of that hateful, harmful speech. But for context, the 0.1% getting through is still thousands and thousands of posts. So, you know, they have developed unique guidelines to inform user communities, um, individuals around the world about what is and is not allowed on their platform. And they do that to, their intention is to protect the communities and preserve the integrity of their platforms. However, as we you indicated, users sometimes perceive those guidelines and how they're applied as being harmful or overreaching. Um, so, let me let me give you some context. Facebook has more than 2.9 billion monthly active users around the globe. And um, recently they were embroiled in some controversy over some of their decisions and content moderation practices. Um, so what they've done in their community standards protocol, they've identified a long list of behaviors that they think is unacceptable and inconsistent to open expression. And that can be found in their online transparency center. Now, um, out of all of those, uh, the four core values that they look as guideline are authenticity, safety, privacy, and dignity. And among all the protocols, Dwight, five have implications or potential implications for um, protection of religious communities from online harms. And those include violence and incitement, dangerous individuals and organizations, bullying and harassment, and hate speech. Um, and so what Facebook would do is their enforcement of that is they can remove the content, they can reduce how often it's seen, or they can inform by identifying it as harmful. Um, so Twitter, uh, they describe themselves uh, as being at the forefront of healthy conversations. And uh, they have what are called, at the heart of their moderation practices, are Twitter rules. So they have 15 critical areas that they monitor. And... Um, that in four of those areas could impact, again, religious communities. 
Those would be violence or glorification of violence, abusive behavior, hateful content, and sensitive media policy. And Twitter uses a wide range of responses to mitigate the bad behavior. Let's look at one other one, YouTube. Approximately 500 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every 60 seconds. So they have what they call community guidelines developed to flag their potentially problematic content, uh, whether that's uh, including videos, comments, links, and thumbnails. And they have into, uh, 22 critical areas of behavior they moder moderate monitor. And for religious freedom, again, there are four that are relevant um, out of all the areas, harassment and cyberbullying, harmful and dangerous content, hate speech, and violent or graphic content. And one of the things um, that I want to bring out is, and you and your listeners may be wondering, okay, so who filters that? Again, you, you, we talked about machines and algorithms, but there are thousands upon thousands of individuals who are employed and subcontracted with in countries around the world for these major platforms, the humans, they are sitting at a desk or at their computer somewhere, and they are looking at this content 24 seven. And so they are making some decisions. Um, and then as that, so it's, they're trying, that's the fallback besides the algorithms, the human monitoring of the content. Yeah, it's it's actually sounds like such a vast uh, uh, you know problem in some ways because you're talking that the amount of content you're talking about from just those three three platforms, and then between the algorithms and and and, and humans, right? So you know how many humans do you really need if the algorithms algorithms miss things? But you know, I know uh, during your research you spoke with several subject matter experts to learn more about how the standards that you identified are enforced and, and impact uh, religious freedom. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, that process and and from talking with the expert, experts, what did you find in terms of how effectively these platforms have been implementing their terms of serve and services as you kind of laid out of the three big ones there? And what what are implications of this enforcement? Uh, for religious communities and uh, freedom of religion or belief, particularly among marginalized communities, because obviously this is there have been some concerns, as I mentioned from the outset, uh, regarding what happened with Facebook's failure to address incitement. What did you find in your research process? OK, um, so that's um, several thoughts there. Let me begin with your first uh, question or query about the methodology. So we approached this research project to try to enhance our understanding of the impact that it is having on freedom, uh, content moderation of religion or belief. And then further understanding how the processes work and, and how do those align with human rights principles under which freedom of expression or belief operates. So we began, first of all, we did some conceptual framework uh, research. So for a couple months, 
we reviewed publicly available information, um, laws, webcasts, hearing transcripts, research studies, books, articles. Um, and those were produced by the government, by USERP, by the UN think tanks. So that vast amount of secondary information was really important for us to form this foundation for context of, of, our, of our work. Then uh, for about four months, we did what we called stakeholder interviews. And we looked at the, around the world and created some categories, of people we wanted to talk to, sectors, government, law, business, academia, think tanks, foundations, and nonprofits, faith leaders, and yes, media. Um, and under business, that included people involved with the, working at the social media platforms. So those interviews um, uh, globally, we conducted um, almost 50 um, qualitative structured interviews and to protect their privacy and the vulnerability of some in their countries, um, we you know, will not be promoting or publicizing their names, but uh, the uh, it was really fascinating, and um, what we learned is um, even though Facebook, from these interviews, Twitter and YouTube and other platforms, and we speak of those, by the way, Dwight, because they are out of the top ten globally. Those three are in the top six in terms of activity and users. So they're they're somewhat representative trickle down of the other other platforms. But what, what we really learned is there's somewhat of a spirit of ordered chaos, if you will. So there are platform policies, they are uh, publicized, but they are laced with ambiguity. And that increasingly is leading to content moderation decisions that at times feel arbitrary or perhaps capricious. And um, though the existence of these terms give platforms the appearance that they're operating through this measured framework, the actual implementation and enforcement of these policies is less assured. So um, like one respondent said to us, they, they think that this in, results in social media companies really taking a passive role in content moderation, that they view themselves as sites that host, but not responsible for that content. Um, so another one said, you know, the fact that these are open, cost-free platforms for free expression is a boon for religious freedom, especially in countries that restrict the right to freedom of expression. So I don't want to be in a position or, or intimate that it's all negative. Without social media, in some countries, uh, they would not on those platforms, they would not have the ability to gather and also to promote uh, things and, that are happening to them. But overall, um, what we found is that um, there's a lot of room and improvement in several areas. Yeah, I think these are important points you're making too, because uh, we end up hearing a lot about and, and focusing on what what was missed or what, uh, but, but there's a lot going on. You talked about these, these terms and the efforts. Um, 
can you share a little bit about the findings regarding how those uh, standards, the international human rights standards, factor into current content moderation? You alluded to some of that. I mean, how much attention, if at all, are these companies paying uh, to freedom of religion or belief and religious expression uh, explicitly, not just the broader human rights or, or hate speech, things like that? Well, it's interesting that you ended your question with explicitly. I think if you didn't have that, um, it'd be a different answer. Um, let, let me begin by saying when harms are amplified on social media, human rights are typically in the crosshairs. OK, so our research and the stakeholders uh, told us that from an international human rights perspective, there is much opportunity for improvement in content moderation. Um, and let me give you one example. For one, bad actors seem to have the upper hand when it comes to collaborative efforts. Um, one shared with us, one stakeholder said, bad actors are actually using social media more efficiently than those trying to protect and promote freedom of religion or belief. They're using it to promote hate, to promote violence, restriction, and we've seen it around the world. Um, basically, so the radical groups are often savvier on the internet, however sad that is. Something, you know, we looked and point to other research that has been um, published and conducted out in the field. And, and what's fascinating is for the last seven or eight years, um, there is a nonprofit research group uh, called Ranking Digital Rights. And they publish an annual index that evaluates 26 of the world's most powerful tech companies. And part of their reason is they are trying to evaluate the tech platform and companies, their own documents and policies, and then compare those, how they're, those uh, allow them to meet obligations to human rights. And then they also rank them against their peers. So let me just share with you the most recent data, and it kind of responds to one way of saying, how are they doing? Um, Twitter ranked first out of 26 global tech companies for improved clarity around their policy enforcement. So 50% of the time, um, they were shown to um, be trying to have some um, systematic approach to how they're assessing uh, their alignment with human rights. Um, when it comes to Facebook, they ranked fifth out of 26 platforms. And basically, again, their weakness, lack of human rights diligence, uh, and lack of transparency. So, what I want to share is the application of international human rights standards to these content moderation practices um, could have measurable impact to drive um, more literacy and education about it. So to the degree that social media companies start to take more steps to be responsive. And Dwight, part of that includes local market context. Outcomes will be more productive and they can demonstrate a, a higher you know, sensitivity to human rights standards. So, you know, they all have these platforms, but basically how best to compel them to incorporate it um, is a big question. 
So the implications, you know, it's interesting when you said explicitly, often people will talk about human rights, but freedom of religion or belief is couched under that. And that connection or distinction or amplification gets lost. And so I, I guess I would wrap up this question by saying chief among the concerns is the potential to amplify rather than diffuse existing biases that threaten freedom of religion or belief. So, um, you know, this is because the algorithms are impersonal. There's somewhat of a lack of transparency and then errors. How do they remedy a dangerous digital climate for at-risk global communities. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and again, the best path forward, Dwight, is when you do speak of those under human rights, but show the distinction and the uniqueness of freedom of religion or belief in content moderation. Yeah, you know, you've hit on a number of issues there and kind of I know this is, a uh, you know, a lot of a lot of material to cover in a very short time. But I mean, you started alluding to some of what you you learned through this research in terms of what can be done to better protect human rights through the content moderation process more generally. But then specifically, how can religious freedom? and protection of religious communities become a more prominent consideration. And I think you, you mentioned the term literacy there. And I mean, as you know, a lot of businesses who do work all over the world and so on, you know, are open to training and understanding. And then as they understand things more, um, you know, holistically, they incorporate different approaches to what they're doing. I, I'm just throwing that out there, but it, is there an area that you see based on your preliminary research as to how uh, religious freedom as a, a fundamental human right could indeed be a more prominent consideration and be a little bit more attuned to and sensitive to what's going on in different parts of the world as far as uh, the content moderation process? Absolutely. Um, you know, research is and should be conducted. It should be actionable. And uh, we believe that premise and, and we've seen it. So this is not just information for information's sake. It's an extremely important um, topic to freedom of religion or belief. And because it's complicated and it's moving at such a fast pace, there tends to be swats at it or people avoid it. So let me just share as we, you know, synthesized our thoughts of many of the leading minds around the world from multiple disciplines, and they are actively engaged on this subject on a constant basis. What emerged and, and became quite clear is there's a need for first more information on how the algorithms work and how moderators are trained to intercept and make judgments. We're not recommending and saying it, that they have to give all their secrets away. We're, we're talking about just, you know, maybe 5% more information, but, but more transparency on that, more understanding of the need to engage and embrace local context and the complexity of language across culture, time, and geography. You mentioned Facebook in uh, Burma or Myanmar. Over a period of 10 years, over a decade, they ended up admitting that they were complicit 
because of their their policies and lack of enforcement. And where that began in the genocide of, of the Rohingya and where that began, Dwight, was with the local context. They did not have enough people that understood the language, could even see the content and nuances. It's something as simple as that. So understanding of local context, more education on how to contribute and consume online. That is the number one golden thread that came out, no matter who we talked about, talked to on this topic. Technology and the platforms are moving so fast and a lot of our approaches are looking back rather than forward. We, we should be and want to be proactive. And that is where the education on how to properly contribute and consume online. Let, let's, let's remind ourselves that these platforms in many countries are often the only point of information, whether it's news that's biased or not, or opinion. So education is the critical proactive education. And then ultimately the, the need for clarity and refinement of the rules and regulations. You know, the stakes are really high. And we we heard this coming through a consistent message through a lot of the stakeholders that that encouraging and incentivizing, you know, multilateral solutions that bring together civil society, industry, and governments. Whack-a-mole with the technology platforms is not going to get it. It hasn't worked to date, and, and it won't work in the future. So getting this balance right of collaboration um, with a coherent system of policy, some due diligence, and remediation will really help address human rights, freedom of religion, belief, risks, and impacts. Wow. Well, I, you know, we're going to have to leave it right here, but a lot of uh, interesting uh, findings and research. We hope this won't be uh, the, the first time we, we learn about this and, and hear more as, as uh, you know, you bring bring this information to the uh, fora. Uh, I want to thank Luanne Sabatier from Sabatier Consulting for sharing her insights and for sharing, uh, you know, just a snapshot of some of the recent research on content moderation processes as it relates to freedom of religion or belief. You can find USERF's work on protecting religious freedom online on our website, as I mentioned, including our recent fact sheet uh, on the topic uh, from December of 2021. As always, thanks for tuning in today, and we will see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.